the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy, and I'm the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Okay, so we're going to be looking and studying a little bit of 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, 20, and a little bit of chapter 21. And I want to start with a story to, to, to try to you know, set the stage in our minds. And it's the, I, I like this story. It's a, about a, a jet. It's making the transatlantic flight. When suddenly the pilot's voice came on the intercom and he says, those of you on the left side of the plane have probably noticed that one of our engines have failed. Please do not be alarmed. We can still fly on three engines, but we'll probably arrive about 15 minutes late. Not that much longer, the pilot's voice again calmly came over the intercom again. Those of you on the right side of the plane, he said, are probably aware that a second engine has failed. Please do not be alarmed. We can make it on two engines, though we'll probably be about 30 minutes late. Again, the pilot spoke uh, to the passengers a few minutes later. It has just come to my attention, he said, that a third engine has failed. Please do not be alarmed. We can make it on make it to the airport on only one engine. However, we will arrive approximately 45 minutes late. One of the passengers turned to another and he simply said, man, I hope that fourth engine doesn't fail. We could be up here all night. <laughs> Funny joke, you know, when we hear it like that, but if it were really to happen to us, nobody would be laughing. When you're flying, your security literally depends on the functioning of those engines. Just as a flyer's sense of security is wrapped up in the proper functioning of those engines, so too, in life, our sense of security is, is often dependent upon various factors in our lives, such as maybe our, it's our jobs, our bank accounts, you know, our families, our friends, our health, our position in society. We can become very secure in these things. So a person with a good job, a nice house, loving family, uh, the respect of others, good health. Well, what else could they, he, she, what else could they possibly need? Maybe in their minds, they don't even need God. Everything's good. And therein lies the problem. God wants us, he wants you and I, me, to find security ultimately in him. All of these other things are temporary and somewhat unreliable. 
but God is eternal and completely reliable. It's kind of like our use of crutches or training wheels. Crutches come in very handy when you have an injury, and training wheels are great to help you learn to ride a bike. But once your injury has healed, it would seem strange to keep using the crutches, right? And once we have learned to ride the bike, the training wheels should be removed because they're just a hindrance to us at that point from growing and maturing. There is an immature and unspiritual part in most uh, uh, or all of us that causes us to neglect to develop our security and trust in God when there are so many other things that offer what we think is secure. A lot of times we don't even recognize that we are trusting in these things rather than God. Or we may not realize that these things are not only our crutch. They have become an idol, the God we are serving. In a lot of cases, God allows us to lose some of the things we find our security in in order to test us or to develop our trust in Him. And this leads us to uh, the segment here that I want us to look at in uh, Samuel from the story of David. We're going to, like I said in the beginning, we're going to touch on parts of this from these four chapters from 1 Samuel. Uh, We can learn a lot of lessons from these, but I want us to focus on one. Just one. Now, Saul's jealousy, King Saul, his jealousy of David consumed him. Within him, you had this ongoing civil war. He was miserable. He was suspicious. He was angry. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 10 and 11, it says, Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Can you picture this volatile scene in your mind? Here's David doing what he can to lighten the king's dark spirits when all of a sudden, whoosh, a sharp pointed spear flies right past his head. It's like reality strikes. Man, this guy's nuts. He's trying to kill me. That's enough to scare anybody. Yet the next verse doesn't say David was scared of Saul. Rather, it says Saul, in verse 12, was afraid of David. It's intriguing. The very people who are out to get us are often the ones who are afraid of us, or they're afraid of what it is we're saying, or the life we're living. Now remember, uh, here in our passage, David has done nothing wrong. He had been a model of humility, dependability, and integrity. He had done everything right, but none of that mattered because his superior, King Saul, was tormented by that evil spirit. He was out of control. It must have been a terrifying experience for for young David, especially since he had done nothing to deserve this treatment. And surprisingly, that incident was not enough to scare David off. He continued to serve Saul and fight against Saul's enemies, both external and internal. In blind fury, Saul ordered both Jonathan and the rest of the men to murder David at their earliest opportunity. But Jonathan, the son of Saul, stood up for David, and momentarily, at least, the truth seemed to seep in a little bit into the darkened soul of Saul. 
Uh, so that brings us over here to chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And that promise was short lived. Down in verses 9 and 10, Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in the house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Paul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Escaped that night. Those words there in verse 10, are going to characterize the next segment of David's life and will become really the pattern and the means of his survival. And notice how God works with David. God's removing every supporting crutch until all David had to rely on was God. And guess what? David discovers that God is enough. The first thing, David lost was the crutch of his position. You may be thinking, why does he need this? He, he is a good guy. There's nothing wrong with David. In fact, we even see he turns out to be one of the, the best kings ever, right? Man after God's own heart. Well, why is that? He was God was preparing him, wasn't he? I think that's what's happening here. David had been brought into the army uh, um, and as a soldier, proven himself faithful, even heroic. But now that's all gone. It's gone in a flash. Never again would David serve in Saul's army. So David fled Saul's presence and army and went home to his wife, Saul's daughter. And then the next support is removed, David's wife. Now we haven't mentioned her yet, so let's take a few steps back. You may remember Saul had promised the man who slew Goliath, who, uh, uh, whoever slew Goliath would have his daughter as a wife. Now, Saul reneged and gave his other daughter to another man. But then Saul discovered that uh, another of his daughters was in love with David. And he saw it was a way to try to bring about David's demise. So he used his daughter as a pawn, asking David to pay a dowry for her. That required him to kill a, to kill a hundred Philistines. Secretly, Saul was hoping that David would be killed trying to get the job done. But David didn't even didn't manage to kill only a hundred, but twice the amount that Saul required. And he did so without being killed, obviously. So that made Saul even more afraid of David. Now, back here to our story. David flees from Saul's presence. He goes home to his wife. 
verses um, 11 and 12, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death. But um, Michelle, David's wife, told him, Oh, if, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So she let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. So he becomes a fugitive. Uh, Michelle deceived her father to aid the escape. She lies to him, saying that he had threatened uh, to kill her if he if she didn't help him. So in essence, uh, David's wife deliberately walks away from him in a way. Never again will they, these two live in harmony. Her lie did not help David. It only deepened Saul's anger against him. So there's another crutch removed from David as he runs through the hills trying to find some secure place to hide. And as you might expect, he goes to Samuel, the man who had anointed him to replace Saul. Remember that he knows that. He's going to be the next king, right? And that's a whole other story. I mean, if I was in that position, I'd be thinking, I'm supposed to be the next king. I'm just going to kill this guy Saul and take over. I bet you most men in this world would act like that. Well, if he's going to try to take me out, I'm going to raise up my support and take him out. David doesn't do that. But still, the next support is taken away from David. Look at chapter 19, verse 18 of 1 Samuel. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramoth and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. Now, Naoth... Uh, is an interesting place. I'm not going to get into it. But they get there. They're, they're there to hide. But no sooner had they gotten there, some someone informed Saul that David is uh, at Naoth and Ramah. And so once again, David is on the move. And in the process, he lost Samuel as a crutch. And you don't think uh, God has a, well, I won't say a sense of humor. But verses 19 uh, to 24 is interesting because Saul sends soldiers there to get David, but as they approached the area, they began to prophesy as the Spirit of God came upon them. And it happened to the two more groups that Saul sent. And so finally, Saul went himself after David. As he approached, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied and stripped off his robe and lay there prophesying the entire day and night. Do you think God is trying to send a message to Saul? He's basically telling Saul, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're after the wrong man. I am protecting him. But in spite of that powerful sign, ultimately Saul would not be deterred. Meanwhile, David's about to lose uh, perhaps one of his most significant crutches, his friend Jonathan. Gradually we see David, he's losing all his support, all those things he is used to leaning on. And we notice his emotional stability is slowly eroding. This once calm, confident young warrior is beginning to feel the squeeze. Chapter 20, verse 1. David fled from Naoth to Ramah, in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Now, Jonathan tries to assure him that, that yeah, this is not the case. My, my, this is not my father's intention. Now, let me read the, the passage, and then I'll tell you why I think Jonathan says that. So, Jonathan says to David, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So, why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. 
Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. We'll get to that last phrase here in a second. So Jonathan, you know, he's here, he's there with his father. He sees his father as a good man trying to do the right thing. But just because he's a good man in the eyes of men, he's not good in the eyes of God. And we know that. We're seeing that side of him for certain. But look how David sees his life. I am just one step ahead of death. Just a breath away. The truth, of course, was Saul hated David and wanted him dead. The two of them come up with an elaborate plan to determine Saul's uh, real intention. As the plan was carried out and Jonathan asked his father, look down, chapter 20, if you're looking at your Bible, if you're driving, don't. Uh, verses 30 to 33. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Yes, right. He comes to grips with that truth, and he says to David down in verse 42, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. What a sad moment that must have been for David. God had separated him from his position, separated him from his wife, separated him from his mentor, and separated him from his best friend. Ultimately, Jonathan went in one direction, David went in another. Their friendship was not over, but now it had to be a secretive, long-distance friendship. And don't you find it ironic that two of Saul's children, Jonathan and Michelle, both sought to protect the man who, he, who is destined to take the throne after Saul. They were more loyal to David. That Jonathan... You know, in the, the scheme of things in the, in the, in the world, you know, the, the, the son, the oldest son, takes the, the throne next. That would have been Jonathan's. But he defended David. And he knew, just as Saul knew, God chose David. The last crutch. Yeah, there's, there's more. You would think that's enough. But there's another crutch to be removed from, from David. And it's a big one. Self-respect. After a brief stop in Nod, where David talks to Abimelech, the priest, you know, he leaves uh, with the consecrated bread and Goliath's sword. He gets that there as well. The Bible says, then David arose, this is chapter 21, verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. King of Gath. So David's next step took him outside the borders of Israel. It's common for outlaws to go into exile and to some you know, friendly or maybe neutral territory. 
But how unusual for an outlaw to go into enemy territory. And not just any enemy territory. David went to Gath. That's the hometown of Goliath, the giant, and the headquarters of the Philistines. Why go there? Perhaps because it would be the last place Saul would look for him, maybe. Do you think David could live there incognito? (laughs) He, He took Goliath's sword with him. Don't you think people would recognize him in the sword? But David's not, he's not dumb. He knew that there was only one way he'd be safe in enemy territory. So, uh, chapter 21, verses 11 to 13. The servants of Achish, the king, said to Achish, Is this not David, the king of the land? Interesting, they call him the king, right? The king of the land. Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Of who? The Philistines. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So there it is again. Feared. Man, what a life to live. He has nowhere to go to be safe. He greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that that you have brought this one to act as the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Funny. So I've got enough nuts already in court. You know, his advisors. Don't bring me another nut. Get this man out of here. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's why, why not just kill him? Well, back then, there was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, th- there was a superstition that uh, you, you, you treat, uh, you got to be careful how you treat madmen. That was taboo to mess with them because people should not be, uh, not be harmed in any way. Uh, am I saying that wrong? It was taboo to mess with them because they believed that they're being struck by, with insanity by the gods. And if you were to mess with a madman, you should bring harm to them because then the gods would uh, bring that wrath upon you. I think that's what's going on here. David knew they had that superstition and used that to his advantage. So David has definitely been stripped of all the supports, all the crutches of life, right? He had a high position, lost it. Had a wife, lost her. Had a wise counselor, lost it. Had a close friend, lost it. Had self-respect, lost it. Lost it. Can, can anyone out there relate to this? I bet many of us, if not all of us, had, have had supporting crutches removed and we could attest to the pain, the instability that would result. For some, the crutch that was removed would be maybe a trusted friend, a broken relationship, a loss of a job. What should we do about all this? Well, we ultimately should do the same thing whether the times be good or bad. We should put our trust in the Lord and lean on Him. Nothing's wrong with with, uh, leaning as long as we are leaning on the Lord. The Lord tells us uh, in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the text that we're, uh, we read next in, in Psalm 56, 
It appears that David, I think, wrote this psalm during this period of his life. And notice the refrain. This is Psalm 56, verses 10 and 11. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that most certainly characterized uh, David's life all throughout this situation. Or maybe what... Listen to how Paul's understanding of this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's true. Our best game plan, the best game plan is to seek to make the Lord our security from the get-go, to hold on to His hand and never let go. We must not make an idol out of our mate, our children, our parents, our friends. We must not make an idol out of our work or our reputation. We must not make an idol out of our money and possessions. Our security is not in any of those things. It only comes from the Lord who has promised Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And that's the lesson that David learned and the one that we can learn as well. Lean on the Lord. Hold to the God's unchanging hand. Let him give the security that you and I need. It's like what Jesus says over at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Remember that? The very end where he gives that Great Commission He's about ready to ascend up into heaven, and he says to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, that's a tall order. They saw what they did to Jesus for going around teaching these things. And now God, now Jesus is saying, Now you go do it. That's that's tough. And so he encourages them there at the very end, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, just like God told his people. And he tell, continues to tell you and me today, through his son, don't give up. I may remove your crutches, but I'm doing that for your per- for your benefit. I want you to be prepared. I want you to lean on me and trust me. That is the purpose of a lot of our, our discomforts in life. So that we can always learn to lean on him. Because there's only one thing important. To keep our eyes and hearts focused on him. And move toward the Lord. We're coming to the end of our program as the time's running out. Thank you for being here. And may God bless you in your walk and journey in the Lord. Ring it out, ring it out, ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. To hear this program again, go to FamilyValuesRadio1010.com and click on the podcast page and find this program and many others right there on FamilyValuesRadio1010.com. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.